Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Borough Market Podcast. In this episode, we are at the first of Borough Talks, a series of public debates throughout the summer which explore some of the most fascinating issues in today's food world. We kick off with Read, Cook, Live, the ingredients of a cookbook, with a panel made up of some of the most respected names in the cookbook world. Stephanie Jackson, Publishing Director of the Octopus Group, Peter Ross, Principal Librarian of the Guildhall Library, Monica Linton, author and founder of Brindisa, Borough Market's Spanish Food Emporium, and Felicity Cloak, author and Guardian columnist. Holding the reins is food historian and vice chair of the Guild of Food Writers, Angela Clutton. I asked each of them what they thought makes a good cookbook. Obviously, lots of lovely recipes that, that seduce you into, into wanting to eat them and so on, but it's all about the storytelling for me. For me, it should be one that's readable, so one that has um, good stories to tell, well-written, um, and one I would like to cook from. So I think there are two things. Cookbooks you read and cookbooks you cook from. Cookbook writers who survive are characters who you can see in their books. You can you can hear their their voices in their books. So those are the ones that really survive through the centuries. I think essentially a book that's wonderful to read. To me, that's the most important thing. Obviously, the recipes need to work, but I like recipes that are more uh, like a starting point as opposed to a finishing point. So you can then travel with that recipe. But the book's got lots and lots of other things to read apart from the recipe. So you, it becomes a companion. You can take it on the train or you can take it to bed and uh, have a good read. That's, to me, a great call. I think the cookbooks are extremely important um, in terms of not just reliable recipes, in terms of having a really beautiful object that you can hold and something where there's the length and the time to expand um, to give something a bit of context, a bit of colour and a bit of personality because I think that's what's missing from a lot of online recipes. You don't get a sense of the person that created them and the land that produced them. Your book is just out. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? It's called The A to Z of Eating um, and it is basically a collection of my 26 favourite ingredients in the world. Um, So it's a real departure for me. Um, Things just real self-indulgence but really lovely, quite eclectic recipes and again I felt that there's so much online, you know, there's a million recipes of chocolate brownies online, including mine, which is great. But um, I wanted to do things a bit differently. So, you know, you're not going to find that many recipes, say, for cheese and Marmite donuts online or soy braised pigtails or, you know, a savoury rye porridge. So I wanted to do something a little bit that would capture people's imaginations, basically. People think of that word in very different ways that whether you're using it to cook from or to sit down and read, you know, they are both, they're just very, very different things. So a cookbook marvellously covers such a broad spectrum of what we need in our lives. 
And so it's still a very broad question, what is a good cookbook? Something for everyone. Yeah. As we settle down to wait for Kate Howell, Director of Communications and Development at Borough Market, to introduce the talk, I asked some of the audience why they were here. Um, I just think it's a really nice way to get a bit of an insight into various different um, elements of food industry and maybe meet some nice people and definitely eat some nice food. Borough Market's my happy place. I've been coming here for 17 years. I used to live in Streatham and come every weekend. Brought my baby here. I was here the day before I went into labour with him for a chorizo sandwich. And now I don't live in London anymore and I still come back every time I come. I live up in Cheshire now. Yeah. you come all this way just for... This is well, your very first borough talk? I come for work, yeah, but I came for this today because I'm writing my first book. So I'm hoping to get lots of ideas and What's advice. What um, Well, I teach cooking classes here and in California. So it's all about teaching in both those places and about how to cook delicious food for busy people who haven't got much time. What's it called? Working title is Spinning Plates. And what's your surname? Wade, Gemma Wade. <laughs> Watch this space. Thank you. Uh, evening everybody, welcome, welcome to Borough Market. Uh, my name is Kate Howell, I'm Director of Communications and Development here. It's wonderful to see so many of you here right in the heart of the market for the kickoff of our Borough Talk season 2017. Um, you've got a really exciting and very interesting evening ahead of you which I hope you really enjoy. Um, my job here is very brief, it's to say hello, welcome, welcome to this beautiful spring day that we're experiencing. The blankets are on your right should you need to snug up a little bit. Um, uh, we uh, are going to have a chat with our wonderful panel ahead of us. Uh, the evening will be followed by uh, food and drink from some of Borough Market's traders. There'll be plenty of time for questions at the end of the session. Um, I am obliged to say as well that the conversation will continue for those of you who uh, are minded enough on social media. We are on Twitter at Borough Market, hashtag Borough Talks, and on Facebook if you search for uh, Borough Market, you might spot the back of your heads because we'll be on Facebook Live for this evening. Right, I think I've got that right. Have I got that right? Yeah, I've got a thumbs up. Excellent. Um, so without further ado, um, I'm going to introduce you to um, your moderator and host for this evening. I know many of you are members of our cookbook club, so she'll be a familiar face to many of you in the audience. Um, Angela Clutton, Vice Chair of the Guild of Food Writers, food writer, food historian, and really top of your CV, host of Borough Market's cookbook club, top of your life, come on, this is a good one, who's going to guide you through this evening. So have a wonderful evening. It's great to see so many of you here, and I hope you can join us for the rest of the series. So uh, thank you. Have a great night. Enjoy the food and drink. Enjoy the talk. Thank you very much, Kate, for that. Um, yeah, as Kate said, I, um, I work for Borough Market on the Borough Market Cookbook Club, and it's so lovely that we have so many Cookbook Club members here tonight. It's lovely to have so many friendly faces, but also to have um, so many people, Cookbook Club members are not, who obviously are here because we all share a love of cookbooks. Um, so I think we're going to have a really, really interesting night because we have a panel who all come from very different points of view about cookbooks and the way that they work with them and what cookbooks mean to them. And I think we're going to you know, hear a lot about that tonight before we then turn over to you guys and have your questions and your thoughts about cookbooks too. So just going to introduce you to our panel. 
We have here Stephanie Jackson. Stephanie is publishing director for Octopus Books. Um, in her biog, she said to me that she doesn't really cook very much herself, but she's <laughs> certainly been responsible for a lot of amazing cookbooks for chefs and writers that you'll all be really familiar with. Stephanie, do you want to tell us about a couple of the writers that you've been working with recently? Absolutely. Um, it's true, though. I am a, I am a poor cook, and I, I have teenage boys who who are frequently astonished at how awful the meals are that I prepare for them, given that I work with some of the most amazing food, uh, food writers and chefs who are out there. Um, so give us a couple. Give us a couple. Give us <laughs> a couple of names. Tricky. So I've just published a book called Prime, copies over there, um, written by Richard Turner, who is the exec chef of Hawksmoor, but also the man behind Pit Q and Blacklock and Turner and George. I'm about to publish Oklava, which is a Turkish Cypriot cookbook by Selin Kizim of Oklava, a restaurant in Shoreditch. Okay. Um, and this autumn, I have books coming from Sabrina Gayor, Alia Hercules, and Claridge's, uh, who are oh, publishing well, really. their very first ever cookbook in their history. Very, very exciting. <laughs> so now we have Felicity Cloak, award-winning food writer, author of Guardian's How to Make the Perfect Column, um, and the New Statesman's uh, Food Writer 2. Um, you have just released your fourth book, is that right? Yeah. The A to Z, A Flavour yeah. Map for the Adventurous Cook, which I'm thrilled to say is our May cookbook club book for the Bro Market Cookbook Club. And everyone's very excited about it. And starting <laughs> to tell me that. what they're doing for their dishes. Thank you, Stephanie. Exhibit A, Stephanie, <laughs> thank you very much. Muddled expertly yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just very quickly, Felicity, can you just give us a bit of an insight into the inspiration behind this beautiful book? So I wanted to write something, and I've doing, been doing The Guardian, How to Make the Perfect column for nearly seven years, I think now, it's quite a long time. And I really love doing it, but it's not always the, you know, my favorite foods. Sure. And this book is all about the food that I really love to cook, my favorite ingredients. It's very, very personal, which, you know, is a little Hi. bit of a relief after <laughs> cooking other people's recipes. That's very honest. Yeah. <laughs> Then next up, we have Monica Linton. Um, any of you who come to Borough Market at all will be really familiar, I'm sure, with Brindisa, which is a Borough Market stalwart and inspiration for so many of us. And uh, your beautiful, beautiful book here, Brindisa, which is just, just fabulous. Do you want to tell us something quickly about, about the book? book? Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, Brindisa started 30 years ago, nearly. So um, it's quite a long wait to bring a cookbook out 30 years from the, yeah. the founding date of Brindisa. So, but I really wanted to wait for the right moment because I wanted a book that wasn't just one-dimensional. I wanted to make sure the book um, didn't just appeal to Hispanophiles or just to Brindisa customers or just be a food guide. I wanted it to have lots and lots of different angles to it and to reflect what Brindisa's meant to me yeah. and to many of my colleagues for the last 30 years. And so many of us. Hopefully, yeah. And um, the three things I really wanted to prioritize were ingredients, recipes, and people. Because behind every ingredient and every recipe, it's certainly in my book, it, they're people. They're different people. Yeah. They're not my recipes. They're recipes I've collected. So it's that a was, beautiful, it's a beautiful, beautiful, yeah. beautiful book. We'll be talking about that more later on. Um, and then, uh, last but definitely not least, we have Dr. Peter Ross, who is Principal Librarian for the City of London's Guildhall Library and responsible for the, um, the extensive collection there, which encompasses collections from the likes of Elizabeth David and the Guild of Food Writers, Andre Simon, and, and more. Um, and Dr. Peter Ross has um, this beautiful 
book called The Curious Cookbook. And it is curious of the cookbook. It's fabulous. Do you want to just tell us just a little bit about that, Peter? Yeah, it comes from my interest in everyday food, um, particularly English food. But I think the highlight of British cooking is in the late 16th, early 17th century. So right. sorry if you're all cooking now. You've missed... <laughs> Missed the boat. Um, so what I did was, it was commissioned by the British Library. I went through nearly every single cookery book in English between about 1500 and 1950 for curious recipes where people are cooking weird, yeah. disgusting things and just wrote about them. It's got the best title, The Curious Cookbook, Viper Soup, Badger Ham, Stewed Sparrows and 100 More Historic Recipes. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, guys. So now we're just going to kind of, you know, kick into the meat of this. Um, each of the um, panel is going to talk to you for a few minutes about their own particular perspective about cookbooks. Then we're going to open it out to some discussion up here before we open it out to some discussion with you guys too. So, um, Stephanie, I think you're going to kick us off. Right. Um, I thought I'd set the scene with just giving you some information about the cookbook market itself. I don't know if that's useful. Um, but food and drink is the biggest single category in nonfiction. So it's a really significant part of the business of publishing. Um, and it's in the region of 90 million in sales every year. Uh, so that was 2016. Just in the UK? Just for the UK. Wow. Yeah, this is just UK. And this is all Nielsen book scan. So it's like our official chart um, statistics that we use. Um, the biggest growth category in food and drink at the moment is what I would call functional food and drink. Mostly functional. I know, it, it <laughs> slightly breaks my heart. Um, and it's, it's mostly cookbooks <laughs> um, that aren't really about the notion that you might wish to eat um, necessarily, but they do contain recipes, it's mm. fair to say, isn't it? Mm. Yes, recipes. I know. It's yeah. <laughs> what do you mean, what do you mean, Stephanie? I mean... Um, I don't want to name names, okay, because that would be right. so rude, wouldn't it? Maybe <laughs> someone else will. But um, there are, um, there's a chap who actually, um, I loved his proposal when I saw it. Um, everyone else said they refused to publish him because they thought he was so awful. But I've been, <laughs> they've been proved wrong. They've lived to yeah. the day. Um, a chap with a beard. Um, what is okay. it, 15 minutes? So some cut, anyway, lean in something. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> oh, <laughs> that might be it. Anyway, he's been huge. I mean, he's driven huge. And, and you know, mm. as a publisher with my business head on, if I was his publisher, I'd be even happier than I am now. Um, anyway, that category, and he's a good representative of that, has single-handedly grown by 12.9%, which is just mad in a market that's, kind of flat and you know we publishers are worrying always that the entire market is in decline so that is extraordinary um, the next biggest category from a Nielsen book scan point of view is what they call national and regional food okay and this is more where where I'm interested in certainly Monica's book sits um, there are four key cuisines within that the best selling of them all is Middle Eastern we have Yotam Otlengi to thank for that. Um, the second category, and that surprisingly, perhaps, because it, it, from my point of view as a publisher, I haven't <coughs> seen much lately, although I suppose it's River Cafe. It's Italian. Um, the third category is Indian. 
Indian is dominated currently by very low price point books. So there are way more Indian cookbooks out there than anything else, um, but they're all quite low price point. I think it's probably like 100 chicken curry type titles. And then finally, British. So that's the backdrop that we're publishing against. And have you really seen that change over the period that you've been working in publishing? I mean, in the, uh, I've been working in publishing for 150 years, so <laughs> things have changed a lot in my time. Um, and I think when I began in the 80s, um, when I first moved here, you might have noticed I'm not a local, um, but I moved here in the 80s, and there was this person called Delia, who like everyone was really excited about, and I'm afraid. I was like, who? What? I didn't get it. Um, but those books that are, were... Um, kind of Bibles, really, for people, um, I think were huge at that point. I think we then went through a, a significant phase of uh, celebrity um, in its various forms, and now we're moving away from celebrity. Celebrity is mostly declining. That's interesting. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I mean, it, it's funny because every, every now and again um, in publishing, we talk about Jamie Oliver having a bad year. Now, for Jamie to have a bad year, I mean, you know, like anybody else would be delighted to have one of Jamie's yeah. bad years. Um, so, and I have huge respect, of course, for Mr. Oliver. Um, he's brilliant, but um, he has historically driven so much. That, that age of the TV show dominating book sales... Um, has kind of, we've kind of moved on from that. I think people are smarter. I think there have been a ton of those sorts of books out there. And actually, people are looking for something a little bit more distinctive. That's my feeling. That's very interesting. Disagree with me later on. <laughs> <laughs> and can you just talk for us a little bit about the impact of the internet on the publishing world Ooh. of cookbooks? Um, I'm, I'm sure we'll broaden it out to a wider discussion. But just for a minute, just get your perspective okay, as a publisher. Okay, I'm just going to say, <laughs> um, I don't think it's had any impact, in, impact at all, okay? Really? I mean, that's obviously not strictly true, <laughs> and we can duke it out in a bit, but I think if you want to figure out how to cook the ingredients you have in your fridge, like right now, and I need to solve this problem because I have a piece of chicken and a pepper, um, or I know that I want to make scones, and right now all of my cookbooks are in boxes because we've moved house. So, so the quickest way for me to make scones, or as I did this week, English muffins, is I will Google it on my phone, right? Um, so I think that kind of I have a problem to solve approach is perfect for the internet, and I'm sure we all do that, I think. Um, but I think in terms of the cookbook market at large, um, I think, and I can't wait to hear what you all think, but I think we want to experience an object and be inspired and think about things and flick through and go, ooh, ooh, that looks, you know. And, and that's how I think people access cookbooks in the main, the kind of cookbooks I'm interested in, certainly how I do. So the kind of inspirational, aspirational yeah. function of cookbooks is something which you really only get from taking it off the shelf and opening it yeah. and having a read. And, and yes, you can do that with the internet, but, but I think it's quite hard. It, it's more difficult to, for that serendipitous moment of, of, uh, to come up on the internet because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think mostly we're looking for something yep. if we're going there. Yeah, whereas the, um, sort of in, the simple instruction of, wanting to kind of know how to cook something, the internet is there more for you know, fulfilling that particular 
bit of it. Right. I mean, we were talking earlier, and Peter was talking about when Delia published the first book, and it, it talked about how to boil an egg, and like what, a, you know, there was huge controversy at the time. Um, but actually, having that in print was incredibly useful for a lot of people. Now, probably no one is going to go to their bookshelf to figure out how to boil an egg. If they don't know, they're going to go straight to their phone. Yep. So, uh, you know, of course, the internet has a place. Um, a really important place. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that's different from what most cookbooks. It's kind of wonderful do. to hear you say that you feel the internet hasn't Yay. damaged <laughs> or affected too much the kind of you know, typical publishing world of cookbooks. It's, it's not necessarily the answer I expected you to give, but I think it's really kind of wonderful that you have. Hooray! <laughs> um, <laughs> I do believe that. Felicity, if I just kind of come to you and carry on on the same point, because when I'm doing the cookbook club, Quite a lot of people talk to me about um, how they um, get recipes and what they do. And a lot of people say they Google Felicity Perfect, Felicity <laughs> Cloak Perfect, Hot Cross Bun, Jitty Con Carney, whatever it's going to be. And you, 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 that, that's what they put into Google to kind of get to a, a, a safe, secure recipe of something that they want to know how to cook. Mm. Which is marvellous, obviously <laughs> absolutely marvellous. But I, I would love to get your take on what Stephanie's just been saying about the, the internet and cookbooks. Um, I mean, I use the internet an awful lot when I'm doing my research for my column. Um, and I have a vast collection of cookbooks. But, I mean, just for finding out who's got a particular recipe yeah. or something like that. And it is easier. That's the problem. You can have all of these cookbooks, but it only takes a second to type it in. And I'm guilty, you know, I've got the timings for how I like my boiled eggs in one of my books, but it's still a lot easier <laughs> just to Google it on my phone. Yeah. So I know I would very much like um, the internet not to significantly affect the cookbook market, but I find it difficult to believe that it isn't, Can to be honest. Can you talk us quickly through your process for the perfect column? Because yeah. you know, for anyone who you know, doesn't know it, it, the idea is that you, you try and explore lots of different versions of mm. recipes to come up with the definitive perfect way of doing it. Yeah. And so obviously to do that, you go through a lot of other cookbooks yeah, so I think in cookbook terms, I'm probably what the fast food industry would term a heavy user. <laughs> I have, I actually went and measured them today for you. I have uh, just over 16 meters of shelves of cookbooks and actually they're all full and I'm getting a bit stressed because my flat is tiny. Um, so I think one of us might have to move out, might be the dog. Um, I'll take him. I, <laughs> there we are, <laughs> to the highest bidder. Um, so I have a lot of cookbooks and what I do generally is, if I have a recipe, for example, um, this week, actually, no, next week, sneak exclusive, it's going to be chocolate fudge cake oh, for nice. Easter, which is something amazing that we haven't done before. And obviously, that is something that sends me towards a specific category of book, the baking section, which is very large these days because baking books are huge. Um, and also, there's a bit of a chocolate section in there. But then... I also sort of want to do some particularly American. So chocolate fudge cake seems to me probably an American, a popular recipe in America. And so I will probably Google various American sites that I know are particularly good to see whether American chefs that I respect might have a different take on it. Because, you know, American cakes often use oil rather than butter. And that's an interesting, is that better, mm -hmm. is that worse, etc. Yeah. Um, and so I'll really try and get together five or six very different recipes to one thing, you know, whether it's difference in ingredients or method. Um, and, yeah, that does involve a lot of trawling of indexes sitting on the floor going, 
is this one significantly different from the other? But um, yeah, the internet does play a big a big part, particularly with newer recipes. Uh, this week was um, we did a whole roasted cauliflower, which is a relatively new recipe, I think, to most of us. But I'd been frustrated because I'd made it a couple of times and I'd ended up with a raw cauliflower or a completely burnt and soggy cauliflower. So I thought this is worth investigating. And I didn't find any... I found one recipe for a whole roasted cauliflower right. in my cook, vast cookbook collection yeah. and all the others are online. So, you know, with newer recipes, sometimes yeah. you find a gap in your collection. But historic things... Oh, you know, I've got some really great old, you know, reprints of old cookbooks and they're not so great online. So yeah. I think there's a place for both, certainly in my world. And are there particular cookbooks that are your kind of go-tos for when you're doing... Comments? There was a point where I actually had to stop myself using um, Simon Hopkinson and Lindsay Barham's prawn cocktail years because I always try and have time to look at the comments underneath the recipes <laughs> and people were getting a little bit... <laughs> bored of me always saying how great they were yeah. um so that is probably for classic dishes that really is beyond compare for me um i also like nigel slater is brilliant i mean i don't think that's a guardian thing i just think he's great um delia is always worth a try because although she's um her recipes always work which is great um from my point of view and you know my column is very much what i find you know my panel find you know subjectively the tastiest um delia tends to be a little bit underpowered she sort of plays it quite safe and i don't know whether that's a generational thing but obviously i've got a debased palate and i like you know the chili and the garlic and the fat etc whereas delia's a little bit more restrained um you know leaths is always good it really depends um on what i'm cooking i've got some some um some favorites from all genres let us say i try and give everyone a fair chance and do you have any thoughts you want to give us about the future of cookbooks? I Did think you... that, and not just because I hope to write a few more, but I do think that there's a place for a cookbook over the internet. Because although the internet is wonderful in that it's searchable, which is great when you haven't got a lot of time, um, you don't, it's not reliable. There's a few sites that I think I know you, like the US website Serious Eats, they really do their homework. I think yeah. it's a brilliant site. Um, but you know with a cookbook, generally, when you get to know a cookbook, you know you can trust it. You can learn from a cookbook because there's space for people to sort of allow you to learn along with them to um, really explain the method and say, you know, there's, this is how you do a julienne or something like that. It's all, you know, it's not hasty like uh, internet sites often are. Um, they can be very beautiful objects, which is, I think, really, as you said, can't yeah. be underestimated when it comes to food because... The thing, the first bite is with your eyes, is unfortunately true. And some of my favourite cookbooks, I mean, I'm a big Jane Grigson fan, yeah. and her books don't have yeah. photographs, and I still absolutely love them. But it can't be denied that yeah. flicking through a book with photographs is, you know, quite a tempting experience. Um, so it can be very beautiful. But also, what the internet doesn't still tend to have is, maybe because it doesn't have the space or the recipes tend to be hastier, but it doesn't have the context that something like... Uh, someone like Jane Grigson or Nigel Slater or Sabrina Gayor yep. will bring to a recipe. So you don't just get the recipe. You know, there might be a million recipes for sort of Sabrina's Tardig rice, you know, not hers, but a, a version of it online. But Sabrina will talk you through why it means so much to her and, you yep. know, what, you know, her feelings about it. Or Jane Grigson will talk to you about how her apricot tart comes from the curate in her French village. Yep. Or, and there's that kind of historical colour 
that makes it an experience that you just don't get online. And that's yeah. why I think that it will be very difficult for the internet to entirely replace cookbooks because it's a very personal experience. I think what you just said is the most wonderful kind of introduction to lead straight on to Monica, your book, because it is... Uh, it feels like a labour of love and it is so much a book to read as well as to cook from. Yeah, I think it's... Well, I wanted it to be definitely be a book that uh, you could spend a long time reading and not feeling obliged to cook any of it if you didn't want to. There was enough going on in it yeah. to actually not have to cook any of it. Yeah. Um, so you can use it both ways. I mean, it, it is... Um, as I said at the beginning, I wanted to include people as well as ingredients and recipes. And... Um, because of my work in Brindisa and setting Brindisa up 30 years ago, my whole journey of Brindisa has been finding people who either grow food, make food, create recipes, and so on. That had to come through. I yeah. couldn't just do a recipe book. Yeah, but it absolutely um, So it's got about 34 food ingredient panels. It's got about 200 recipes. And it's got quite a lot of stories about people that I've got to know and love and places that I've discovered with them. So it's much more of a, a travel log always sounds a bit corny, but it is those roads of Spain that I would never have gone down if it hadn't been for the business. Yeah. And looking for that cheese or the grower of some special beans or something like that. And then that turns into the recipe. And is that what you had in mind when you set out to do the book? Did you know it was going to go that way and be that kind of book? Yeah, I mean... I did know it was going to go that way. It was, it's, quite, it's a bigger book than uh, my publishers here. It was bigger <laughs> than we were going to really set out. I just, the problem is it became a big book, yeah. but it could have been bigger. Yeah. In fact, it was going to be bigger, and Louise <laughs> very carefully said, come on, we've got to just cut it back. How long were you working on this book, Monica? Well, it took about six to seven years to really work through it mm. because... Um, because of these elements with the ingredients and the people behind the business in terms of the ingredients, um, I wanted to make sure... That was relatively easy because that's what is all about. So what I needed to do was just fact-check that with the growers, go back with my colleagues and find out more details and make sure we had it all still up to date and it was all accurate. But the recipes were much harder because I collected those from all over the place. Yeah. Um, my colleagues, Leo over there is one of the chefs who contributed quite a few recipes. Josette con contributed recipes as well. But um, the ones that were more difficult um, were from the cheesemakers or the uh, country folk that I met in Spain because you go and you see them cooking the recipe and you think, I'm following that. And you write down the instructions as you think you're following it. And then you get back home and you think, oh, I think there's some steps missing. Yeah. And then you ring them back and they say, oh, you just throw a bit of that in and so on. And so you sort of, the rest, some of those recipes, you almost have to uh, interpret them. You know, none of it is, should be frightening. None of it should be out of bounds. So if you read a recipe, it's very possible to interpret it your own way because a lot of Spanish cooking, particularly in families, is you cook what's to hand. Yeah. So if you cook a rice dish, if you've got a rabbit, you put it in. You know, if you haven't got a rabbit, you put a chicken in. Yep. But so sort of that's the approach. So that's a lot of those recipes are, you know, you should use them like that to inspire your own thought process. Yep. And the book shouldn't limit what you do with it. And the photography is modest. There's photographs in there. But my feeling with photography is that sometimes it can impose, sometimes it can limit what you might do yourself. 
And I think the freedom that you gain by having words that speak to you as opposed to images that dictate it needs to be like this yeah. is also a huge uh, pleasure. I think, this, the, um, I think that's really interesting what you just said and um, the, the idea about how books look and the importance of photography and styling is something which I think would be really interesting to talk amongst the four of you. But I know you're, you're clutching some other books there, Monica. What are, what are those ones Sorry, you've got? Sorry. It's a little, little bit like Listen with Mother, because I sort of, they're a bit like security blankets. Bring, I had to bring them with me, because this is just an example of one of the books that's a Bible at home for... My husband's vegetarian, so we have this conflict all the time. We have to cook two meals, because I've got carnivorous children. Um, so his is this Chinese vegetarian cookery book by Jack Santimaria. And it's got about, it's got so many recipes in, it's got no photographs, it's got about three recipes on a page, not unlike Jane Grigson's mm, kind of books, yep. but it's just invaluable. And this has lived with him, or he's lived with it, since he was a teenager, trying to cook vegetarian food in a family that, his own family, when he was living with his mum and dad. And then I brought this, which is completely different, because it has got so many details, but What's so enjoyable about a book with lots of detail is that on a weekend, when you've got the time, you can indulge, you can indulge the time, and it becomes almost like a best friend. What's that book? All about braising from Molly Stevens in Vermont. Okay. And um, it's one of those things, it all almost becomes like a best friend, because you have a, a weekend to spend the time going through it. You can study. She has drawings of some of the pots, lots of explanations about the different cuts of beef that you might need. Um, and to me, that's, that's what... That, the weekends, I spend a bit more time going through that, and it becomes a hobby, I suppose, yeah. much more than just a chore. So cooking for me at home is sometimes a chore because I have a family and it's the week. It's the week. Sometimes it's pure pleasure, and sometimes it's therapy because, you know cooking long, slow dishes, yeah. whether it's beans, whether it's braising, is quite a healing process. If you've had a busy week or you've got ungrateful family who don't like what you cooked the night before, you just... <laughs> that's my life. <laughs> you just spend time doing something you know that's going to really work. And in the book, the Brindisa book, I have focused quite a lot on one-pot family dishes. Right. I, it's, a, it's a joyous way to cook yeah. and to be together around the table. So. I'm so anxious about this sign behind us. Fall over. <laughs> yeah, I think we're okay. Um, I think, in the, as you were just saying, you know, different cookbooks fulfil different functions. What, you know, what, how you want to feed your family and what it is you're doing, whether you want to sit and read something or whether you want to yeah, make something so, quickly. So, I mean, for family cooking, I always re use books like Ballymaloo or general books have got absolutely everything and variations on some of the very basic things, even if it's just roasting a chicken. Um, then I will use chef-led books, if you like, like Simon Hopkinson or Angela Hartnett or, um, you know, through Brindisa we've known so many professional chefs and I've got a lot of their books. Um, so that's weekend cooking yeah. for us. Or therapy is braising. <laughs> and um, then if it's learning or um, trying to enjoy a real read, yeah. if you like. It would be Dorothy Hartley or Florence yeah. White or some of those Lovely. books yeah. that you probably wouldn't cook from nowadays. Yeah, yeah. But they're going to just enhance your knowledge. I'm going to take your cue from there, Monica, talking about some older books to go to Peter's and say patiently waiting at the end of the line to give us some historical cookbook context for everything we've been talking about. Yes, I wanted to sort of talk to you about um, something about the history of, of English cookery books. 
Um, because what's quite interesting about it is there's nothing new under the sun. And if you go back yep. in time, you can discover celebrity cookbooks 300 years ago. So just very briefly, um, the history of English cookbooks starts in about 1500 with uh, the first cookery book published in this country on, on cooking, but doesn't really get going until the end of the, uh, the 16th century. When you start to get um, individual men collecting recipes together and publishing them. And you asked me a really interesting question on the, on the phone when we were talking. It's uh, who published them and why did they publish them? And I've never really thought about this. <laughs> Historically, why did people publish cooking yeah. books? I think they published them to make money, which is what they do now. So yeah. in the past, you aimed your cookery book at your market and the market for books in the late 16th, early 17th century is going to be quite well-off people. So your recipes are going to be aimed at quite well-off people the sort of food they would want to eat. So you would find people like Thomas Dawson is creating recipes or collecting recipes that reflect the upper middle class's uh, tastes in food. And then uh, after the restoration of um, Charles II, you get what I think is a disaster in English food. You get the influence of French food, which has happened repeatedly through the history of English food. So it happens after the Norman Conquest. It happens after the restoration of Charles II because he comes back from... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. France, with all these ideas about what good food is, and um, the sort of books that, that re reflect that are like Robert May's The Accomplished Cook, which I, I would recommend to all of you as being a really wonderful, brilliant book published in uh, 1660. And it's quite cookable from, isn't it? You can it's quite cookable from. You can, it, it is you can look at those yes. recipes and kind of work it out. Yes. So Robert May actually gives you instructions. Yeah. Earlier, they didn't give you instructions. It, there are some quite early ones that do, but basically they gave you take a chicken and put it with some rice and boil it up and do that. Um, so um, I think English food is a disaster when it meets French food and then we start to forget about the importance of French food and we start cooking British food. We like to gather things in. So by the early 18th century, you start to get 
women writers, which, is, which are much more interesting in many ways, because we, we can guarantee that they probably actually really are cooking this food and not just collecting the recipes. Um, so um, you then also get celebrity chefs or celebrity cooks in the 18th century, like Charles Carter, uh, later on um, people like Simpson. These are people who have either worked for nobility and are publishing their recipes perhaps as an advertisement for themselves to get another job, um, or they're running London taverns, and London taverns are really important, so these are things like the London tavern itself. They're publishing books of recipes they cook in their restaurants, they're not called restaurants at that time. It's like an advertisement to come to my restaurant, which is what people do today. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Come to my restaurant in the late 18th century, early 19th century. This is the sort of food you can get, turtle soup being the classic one in London taverns. And if you look at the instructions for in books like Hannah Glass, uh, which is probably the most important cookery book of the 18th century, Hannah Glass is the Art of Cookery, 1747, what she's trying to do is she's fighting against the influence of French complicated food. She's simplifying food for the newly emerging middle classes. So Hannah Glass is trying to give instructions to people who don't really know how to cook or people who are going to tell their, their own cooks how to, how to cook things. And then eventually in the 19th century, you get cookery books that are modern cookery books. So Eliza Acton in 1845 brings about The Art of Cookery, which is essentially a modern cookery book with a list of ingredients, the weights, the instructions on how what to do, uh, what it costs. But she puts her list of ingredients at the end of the recipe, not at the beginning. And then obviously um, Mrs. Beaton puts her uh, ingredients at the beginning uh, with the costings, how many people it will serve, etc. And then good, clear instructions. So, Elizabeth, um, so Isabella Beaton, her first edition is a brilliant book that's then bastardized by the publishers over the next 150 years. So a really important book, and I think it's been, it's been denigrated by lots of people over the years. It's a very interesting book. And then into the 20th century, you start to get people like Florence White, Dorothy Hartley, who are really interested in ordinary English food and writing a history of food. So if you don't know Florence White, she published a book um, in um, 1932... Um, good things in, in England. England, yes, which is gathering together recipes um, from history, and she advertised in newspapers for people to send in recipes. And it's a book that sort of was revived in the last 25 years, chiefly, I think, because Elizabeth David mentioned it and said it was a wonderful book, and everyone rediscovered it. And then after the Second World War, you, after rationing and things, you get Elizabeth David and uh, Jane Grigson, who are very different people. They're not, I would say, they're not, in, not crooked book writers. They are food writers, and they're writing, they're writing books to read. Yeah. And yeah. Um, one of my favorite books is uh, Elizabeth David's English Bread and Yeast Cookery because there isn't a recipe till two, page 265, and I think that's the sign of a really good yeah. book. There's yeah. no recipe <laughs> for about the first 150 pages. And nowadays, you're getting all of that. You're getting celebrity cookbooks, people advertising their restaurants, people who are food writers, people who are actually writing recipes. And people are, are what they've always been doing, like Hannah Glass, is stealing recipes from everybody else. 
Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And it's so interesting to hear you talking about people who had you know, restaurants or taverns and wanted to get advertised and get people to come, which is obviously, you know, you have um, chefs and you know, restaurants who are doing books as well. And it's, it's so interesting how what's happening now in cookbooks actually may in some ways not be that different from what has been happening in cookbook history. But one thing which um, I'd just like to touch on amongst the four of you is very much about the, um, the production and styling and presentation of books, and we, we, we mentioned it briefly earlier about um, the photography and the, 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 uh, the importance of that now. But just to go back to you, Peter, uh, for, in a historical way, would there have been drawings, sketches in cookbooks? Yeah, so Ro Robert May, in his Cupbridge Cook, he has uh, drawings of um, pie designs. You know, in the 17th century, people like to make pies and decorate them beautifully with cut pastry, etc. He has whole pages of pie designs um, wow. in his books. And then in the 18th century, you get um, designs like that, but you also get, um, more importantly, is layouts of the table because there was that um, right. style of serving um, uh, a la Russe, I think it was, I can't yeah. remember which way around it was, uh, where you, you laid out the food on the table, which was the first remove, and then it, like, a bit like a buffet, and then that was removed, and you laid out your second course or your third course. In, 18, in the 18th century, they had illustrations like that, and obviously in the 19th century, in Mrs. Beaton, you start to get colour lithography, right. which then introduces colour images yeah. into that, and then it really takes off. But in the 20th century, it sort of disappears to yeah. a certain extent, yeah. not to reappear until the 1970s, colour, you know, good colour pictures in... Certainly when we did um, The Elizabeth David, um, I think it was summer cooking for the cookbook club, and there were no pictures in that. And I know that there may be some people here tonight who were there for that, who found it actually quite difficult cooking from a cookbook that didn't have any pictures in it, because we're so used now to modern cookbooks being very much styled you know, with almost every dish. Do you want to just talk to us, Stephanie, about, from your perspective, the importance of the, the imagery of food and cookbooks? Right. I mean, I think your point about the 70s as being the point where uh, a lot of photography was introduced is, is right. I, I um, started out my publishing career in a company called Dorling Kindersley, and um, one of the founders, Peter Kindersley, his whole thing was about the notion of lexivisual learning and some people understand information by reading words and other people understand information by seeing images of that and therefore what was really important in that company was to have detailed step-by-step -step, like you know beyond the pale for anything we would do now but incredibly detailed step-by-step -step photographs of every single process um, he actually first did that with the joy of sex, in fact. Um, that was his big <laughs> innovation then. And then he applied it to food and basic gardening and any other uh, nonfiction subject you can imagine. Um, so that was a huge thing at the time. Um, and then I think it probably, I mean, anyone correct me if I'm wrong, but I think probably it became a bit of a, like, we're doing it because we can. You know, we can, we can, sh we can take, we can spend thousands and thousands of pounds on photography and produce these beautiful images. Um, and gradually that was introduced. And I think, I think what a lot of publishers feel now, and that's from feedback that we get from consumers and, you know, the people reading the books, is that readers like the images. That's one mm. of the, the things we talk about a lot, is to what extent is this new book that we're, we're hoping to publish going to be illustrated? Um, and to what extent does it have to be illustrated? Because everyone out there who might buy it would like to have pictures. Mm. Um, I think there's a move towards 
more in the direction of, of being a bit more sophisticated, arguably. Um, I mean, I personally love books that are, are much more of a read. Um, and I do like pictures to an extent, because that gives me confidence to cook some things I might not try otherwise. I love what you said earlier about it, Monica, though. Um, and uh, so I think, I think we're looking for books now that maybe aren't so obviously, you know, there's nothing more dull than recipe picture, turn the page, recipe picture, turn the page, and like 300 pages are like that. That's really boring. We want kind of face, uh, or ebb and flow and pace. Um, I also think there's a thing, just to pick up on something Peter said earlier about food books for the cookery audience that aren't necessarily entirely about recipes. I think that's a trend. That's interesting. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? I mean, a good example of that is one that I didn't publish um, <laughs> as ever, and that was Tim Hayward's Knife book. Okay, yeah, beautiful um, book. So, brilliant book. Um, yeah. It's not a cookbook, yeah. but it's about food and cooking yeah. and you know, yeah. implements we use. Felicity, do you have anything you want to add about this, the styling production of books at the moment and in the future? Um, one thing that I'm seeing more of and that I rather like is um, the replacement of some of the photographs with illustrations, which I think don't mm. tend to date as fast yep. as photographs. I mean, if you look at even a book published in the 90s, sort of the First River Cafe books, they kind of strike you as the kind of style of food photography that wouldn't yep. be used now. Um, and I think that's a shame because it suggests the recipes yep. are dated, which they're not. Um, although we probably use fewer sun-dried tomatoes these days. But, um, yeah, I'd, uh, it sort of pains me that people say that if you don't have photographs, your book won't sell. And I know it's true because people like them, but I do think what Monica says is right, that it can sort of hold you back because something looks very sort of unapproachably beautiful because it's been styled within an inch of its life yeah. when it doesn't have to be like that. But it does require a lot more effort to get into, you know, a recipe. You have to read it through to imagine what it's going yeah. to be like, yeah. um, as opposed to just looking at a picture. Um, so I'm, you know, I, I try and not be influenced by whether something's got pictures or not when I'm thinking about cookbooks I buy. Um, and I hope that it won't become predominant. I mean, there's, on the internet, there does seem to be a fashion for recipe blogs to have a picture of every stage of the process, which can be very useful if you know, you're, you're talking about uh, whipping the eggs and sugar until they're white and voluminous. To see a picture of that yep. is actually quite helpful. But to see a picture of the eggs being cracked, <laughs> just <laughs> think, oh my God, get yeah. to the recipe already. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can have too much of a good thing, I would yeah. say. That's very interesting. And I'd be very interested to hear what you guys think as well about the production and styling of books and what kind of cookbooks you like to read and how important you feel uh, the balance of imagery and words is. We're going to come um, on to questions from you guys soon, so please start thinking about things you'd like to ask. But before we do that, I just want to run down the panel and ask you um, for your Desert Island cookbook. Everyone's been prepped, so they hopefully will have their <laughs> Desert Island cookbook in mind. We're going to start the other way around. Peter, what's your Desert Island oh, cookbook? One to read from, one to inspire you, one to cook from? It can be anything. Uh, I would say Robert May is the accomplished cook, but if, you're, if I was going to cook from a book, it would be, I'm afraid, Simon Hopkinson's The Good Cook, actually, because right. he just, he, his recipes are food I want to eat, which is really important to me. So that's the one I always turn to. Um, if I want to read a cookery book, 
um, then it would be Jane Grigson's Food with the Famous, which is probably one of her least known mm. books. I don't know that. So everyone knows, um, you know, French book or whatever yeah. it is. Um, so Food with the Famous is um, basically a book where each chapter is about somebody from history and she finds recipes relating to that person. Oh, and it's a, it's a really brilliant book. It introduced me to, just mention this, to one person who's called um, uh, Parson Woodford. You may know him. He was a diarist in the late 18th century. Nothing ever happened in his life. He lived in the countryside. Nothing ever happened, but he recorded what he ate every single day. So I would recommend uh, Food with the Famous by Jane Grigson and also reading Parson Woodford's yeah. diary, which is just superb and brilliant. No, I won't do but the actual radio show and say you have to choose one. You can have two. I'll get you yeah. two books. Monica, what are your Desert Island cookbooks? Well, if but, I'm, I, this is all about braising is number one for me particularly if I'm with my kids who need a lot of meat, <laughs> a lot of slow-cooked meat dishes to stay happy. Um, as um, Molly writes here, sharing a meal from one pot, as you often do with a braise, creates a feeling of commonality that leads to sharing a congenial meal. The warmth of the pot from the oven, the concentrated aromas of slow-cooked meat or poultry or whatever, the tender textures and the deep flavors all contribute to setting people at ease. So this, this would be right. number one. If I was alone with my vegetarian husband, it would be Deborah Madison's Green's Cookbook, which has got no pictures either, and it's been a Bible. We've used it for all of our 20 years together. So it's a fantastic book. Nice. Felicity? Um, I'm going to have a sort of uncanny echo of Peter's choices here. Um, to cook from definitely the prawn cocktail years by Simon Hopkinson and Lindy Berham, which I just love. Everything from it is brilliant. Um, the possible exception of the Black Forest Gatto, which has a small issue, make mine instead. Um, but that is just such a great book, and I love it, and I think that they both write beautifully. Um, and then if it was also to read, if I was alone on this desert island, I probably would want Jane Grigson, but I think my favourite of hers is her English... Is it English food? English English, food yeah, yeah, English food. It's just, it would make me feel a lot less homesick, presuming this island is not Lundy or somewhere. <laughs> um, just so much detail and just lovely. So, yeah, those two. Nice. Stephanie? Okay, um, I have to say, I have Peter's book on my bedside table. Oh, thank you. Um, your book, Monica, is in my office, and your latest book is on my desk at work. Mm. Yeah. Is that a good thing? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's Far all good. from a kitchen. It's all good. I mean, I love what I would call writerly food writing, and so I go back again and again to the likes of Nigel Slater's Kitchen Diaries mm. or any Diana Henry, and I love mm. Nigella. I'm a big Nigella fan. Um, there's a book I really love, and I will just garble the name, and you will correct me, Peter, Edward de Pomen? Oh, yes. Cooking yes. in 10 Minutes. Yes, yes. Um, written, do we know when? Well, very early. A long time ago, ago. <laughs> 80 years ago, and he has this um, wonderful recipe for oysters and hot sausages where he basically says, slurp an oyster, then pop in like a crackling hot little mini sausage, cocktail sausage, and then slug back a, a bit of champagne, I believe it is. <laughs> um, and I love his recipes. They're all about three lines. Um, you know, they're incredibly, it's clarity, it's brevity, and it's intent. 
um, and I adore it. So that's my, my favorite nice. historic example. Okay. So we're going to open up to questions um, or just points that anyone wants to make. Um, and if you'd like to tell us your Desert Island cookbook, then please feel free to do that too. There are some microphones coming around. If you can try and wait for the microphone to get to you before you start your question, that would be really helpful. Who wants to go first? This lady um, just over there with a hand shot up first. Hi there. Hello? Can you, oh, yes. Oh, that's loud. Um, hi. I was really interested in what you were saying about um, pictures and things, because although I love to look at cookbooks with pictures and I love the ones with stories, I do worry that maybe you don't sink yourself into a dish if all you see is the thing. And I sort of worry that there's lots of delicious things that don't look as beautiful as, say, cupcakes or salads with colourful radishes or whatever, which are very trendy at the minute. Mm. Are we missing out by being too picture-led sort of in an age of Instagram and so forth? I mean, if I could just jump in there, you've reminded me that if I'm doing um, a recipe that I need to shoot myself... So in my book, we do, not all of the recipes are um, photographed because there are a lot of recipes and um, there's a lot of text as well. So I think photographs would have been too much. There are some... Um, and obviously the ones that got picked for the photographs were the ones that sort of are very colourful or, you know, not the... I always think that the most delicious food is often quite brown, which is unfortunate. Um, but if I'm cooking something, say, for the Guardian column, and you can see why people always finish with a sprinkle of herbs or, you know, the modern things and pomegranate seeds, it's not always... They rarely do a dish harm, but it's not always that they're absolutely necessary. It's just that otherwise people say oh, that looks like dog's vomit or whatever. And so you have to do it or like put an egg in there or something. And that is a bit worrying because not all the best dishes are beautiful. Some of them are very, very brown. Um, so I think you're right, it's a dangerous thing. Brown food, classic. Yeah, love album. brown food. Yeah. Really into it. Okay, so next, next question, who else? Yes, lady down here. We've got a microphone down here. Hi. Um, oh, sorry. Um, I was just curious about what you thought about self-publishing and how that's going to change Me. things. Well, sorry, I'm looking at you, I'm guessing. <laughs> You've probably got an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, gosh. Okay. I am not a big fan of self-publishing, which sounds mean. And, of course, I'm going to say that because I'm a publisher. But I think... I know how hard it is. Um, I've not written a book myself, but I'm really well aware of, of the amount of work that goes mm -hmm. into producing any book. And I think that the thing a publisher should do for you is get your book in front of your biggest possible audience. So, of course, the publisher does all sorts of other really brilliant things. Um, but the most important thing they do for the writer is, is deliver your audience to you and your book to that audience. And it's very hard to do that successfully if you self-publish. So it is possible. There are all sorts of exceptions that you'll hear about, particularly in various forms of fiction. Um, I think if you have tried the traditional route of talking to a, public, you know, a normal publisher and you're not having success, yet you really feel passionate about producing your book in book form, then of course you should do that. Um, so it's not to say there's any you know, shame in self-publishing or people shouldn't do it, but just be conscious that you're less likely to reach an audience. And, and I would hope that anyone who spends the hours and mm. weeks and months producing um, a work can get it in front of lots of people and be rewarded yeah. for that. Peter, do you have anything about um, self-publishing his historically? 
to say? Um, the, the only one I can think of is there was a, a Kidder in the Eintracht Kidder published his own cookery work by having the the um, recipes engraved rather than set on in type. <laughs> but I, th I think the major problem with self-publishing is also that the design of self-publishing is terrible. The paper's usually terrible. The paper's usually has that blue cast. People don't understand about, you know, setting the text away from the gutter, all those sorts of mistakes which make a book look ugly and bad to use. So I think that's, that's the problem. And distribution is going to be the disaster really could i jump in i don't know if this counts as self-publishing but unbound which yeah. is maybe oh, yeah. a halfway house yeah because yeah. i just that's um, not self-publishing okay because i was going to say that books that might have struggled for whatever reason possibly the author themselves to find a traditional publishing deal like yeah. jonathan meads's new book i think that's um, brilliant yeah, okay, so that's a bit different. Yeah, and but that's a crowdfunding model, and of course they've now partnered, I want to say, with Penguin. I think it is. Does anyone know? It is, is it? Penguin, it is, isn't yeah, it? I think so. Yeah, they, they've partnered with a mm. publisher. Um, but they, you know, they're founded by John Mitchinson, who is a publisher in his own right. Um, that is a bit like going to Kickstarter with a, a, any other kind of entrepreneurial idea. You crowdfund for the... Uh, the money that's needed to get the book off the ground. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Letters of Note is not a cookbook, but, but their most successful, I believe, mm. book to date. And it's fabulous. And Canongate published it in, in, in you know, the traditional publisher mode. Yeah. So that's, a, that's mm. a great route. Just, just very quickly, Hannah Glass's book in 1747 was crowdfunded because she did it by subscription. So people cool. subscribed <laughs> before it was published. Yeah. And she produced a beautiful folio-sized volume from crowdfunding, essentially, in 1747. So. Nothing new. Nothing new. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else has got a question? How do you think that social media affects books being published now? I mean, certainly Nigella's last book, I remember, had an entire colour-coded social media campaign. Do you think that the instant feedback provided by Twitter and Instagram is affecting the way that books are published now? Monica, do you want to take that? Oh, my goodness. I'm such a... Um, do you engage oh, with social media much with um, the print is a book? We, 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 we do quite well with using yeah. social media. It's something I find quite difficult myself to use, but I do use it. I mean, we did a rundown at Christmas time of recipes, and I you know, you don't know what effect it has. Yeah. That's the problem with it. Yeah. How do you measure the impact, uh, really, on the sales? It's just part of a general yeah. effort yeah. to get it to people who might use that medium as opposed to a bookshop. Um, I mean, I think, for me, great cookbooks are not going to really communicate through um, digital or through social media very well because they have a feel and they have a weight and they have yeah. a a whole series of other things that you just can't get across. So it's like a sort of, it's to entice you to go a bit further as opposed to, yeah. um, do you know what I mean? And that's what I would hope it would do. It might take you into a bookshop where you would get to look at the real thing and then hopefully buy it. Well, I saying that, I get a lot of uh, press releases about books that are coming out and increasingly they will say how many social media followers the person has. Um, which Does is, that appeal to you? It really pisses me off, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> because if I haven't heard of them, and you know maybe they're in Made in Chelsea, <laughs> then I'm thinking, I'm sure you're a great person, but do you know how to cook? And then I yeah. get the book through, um, unsolicited. And it says things like, um, you know, first caramelise your onions, this will take ten minutes. And at that point, I put the book in a charity park. So I think you've clearly not written this yourself, and you've clearly never cooked. So, yeah, sorry, rant. <laughs> <laughs> 
good. Uh, lady of question down here. Oh, hi. Um, um, for someone who's starting out in food editing um, or cookbook editing, um, what would you say are the most important things to keep in mind um, from the point of view of people who work with editors, so maybe you're creating your own recipes and you're having somebody edit them, or from the publisher's point of view of how you put things together and, and how you should learn and think about cookbooks? Stephanie, do you want to go for that? Um, I'm not sure if this will totally answer your question, but I think for me, more importantly, uh, more and more imp something that's more and more important all the time is preserving the tone and the voice of the author and don't edit the author away. <laughs> because the reason someone like me um, decides to work with a particular author um, is because I've fallen in love with them and their writing. And that is the starting point for me. And yes, the recipes need to work, um, but the individual style of that author has to ring clear. Um, and so I think that's the most important thing is don't edit the author away, right? Yeah, 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 and it's always a yeah. temptation. I mean, back when I was at DK a hundred years ago, and you know, we were doing, we did publish um, Elizabeth David, by the way, but but um, we were doing what I would call more functional books. You know, it might be a hundred chicken recipes, that kind of thing, and that was about getting the information out. So you know, there is a place for those books. Um, but I think the kind of publishing that probably you'll be involved with in your career is going to be more about the stories that people tell and the characters. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's helpful, but in the front, in the Brindisa cookbook, we acknowledged Sheila Keating, who was the ghostwriter or co-writer. She was the disciplined person behind my madness. And, but it was incredible because we worked five years, six years together to get that to work. And... Everybody who read it afterwards says, Monica's completely there. It's not Sheila. So she had managed to do that, and she's really skilled, and she's done it for... She has... Uh, that's her profession. But um, it was very comforting when people read it and said, that sounds completely like you. There was absolutely no question that I'd been edited out. Yeah. Um, and anyway, I thought it was, a, it was a really, really big challenge to, you know, to discipline me into something that was actually structured, which is what also, which Louise and Sheila managed to do for me. But I'm still very, I'm very present, as you probably, hopefully, will find if you read it yourself. The question in the back? Um, at the top of the conversation, you mentioned the word truth. And many, many years ago, I trained to be a chef, and there was a book by uh, Cesarani and Kinton, I think it was, called Practical Cookery. It's probably about the 25th edition now. But it was our holy Bible. It was the only go-to book. And really, for you, Peter, so those recipes were strenuously tested. They were foolproof. How foolproof were the recipes in the 1600s, 1700s? And did they go through that testing, the rigorous testing that's required nowadays? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure we can know the answer to that. Um, I would say if they came from somebody who was a professional cook, then they probably were rigorously tested in his own kitchen, but there would be no process for testing anybody's cookbook. But it's interesting that certain ones do survive. And if I just bang on about Hannah Glass again, published in 1747, it was still in print in the 1830s. So something must have been there um, that was useful to people. There was a, a way of describing recipes that people could understand, but there was 
so far as I know, there was no way of, of testing the recipes at the time, except if they were writing perhaps in one of those London taverns and people had actually tried the food out, then that might be a, a way of doing it. But I, I really don't know the answer to your question, I'm afraid. One more questions, ladies, just here. Hi, I had a question about recipe writing specifically, and if anyone has any tips on on do's and don'ts, or um, when writing a recipe, or helping other people take family recipes and write them down in a way that that can be shared. I I volunteer with a group that teaches uh, seniors in North London how to cook uh, different things, so people bring in family recipes and they type them out, and I have to make them look like they're going to work for 16 people. So I just was curious if anyone had any tips on things to keep in mind when, when writing an actual recipe down? Um, as I used to work in food magazines and I used to edit other people's recipes. Um, and one thing that I always found incredibly helpful was to imagine myself making, I like actually imagine myself making the entire thing from start to finish because that's when you realise that you've left an important step out or something isn't quite clear and also to realize that a clear recipe isn't necessarily a work of great beauty um you know it's great if you can make it elegant but it's more important to make it clear so don't worry that you've said the word colander three times in two sentences that's completely fine be my tips <laughs> more questions uh let me go to the microphone to the lady just in the middle there I was just wondering whether you think that gender plays out at all in terms of cookbook sales. And if we look around the, the area tonight, um, we're predominantly female, I guess. But do you think that male chefs or cooks who've written are actually more popular or is it not an, not an issue? Ooh. Um, I'll just say I don't have any data on that. I didn't think to bring that. Um, as a publisher, I don't think, right... What I need is more books by men or women or any other kind of person. Um, I'm, I think the thing that's most, the single most influential thing in terms of just sheer sales is your exposure and the size of your platform. And it's a really boring thing I find mm. myself saying um, to agents and so on um, who present me with new ideas, like, you know, someone from Towie or whoever wants to write a cookbook. Um, if you have an enormous platform on you know, national television and you know, you're a columnist and you have shops and a restaurant and you, know, you have a million followers, then a load of people are going to buy your book. <laughs> so whether you're male or female, um, that's the most important indicator of sales, broadly. Well, I think... Oh, don't, oh come on, one last question. One last question at the front. You've got the microphone. Just come down here. Obviously, can I just say, that has, none of that has any bearing on the quality of what you do. <laughs> so we are not just looking for those people with a million followers and over, or, you know, the national TV programs, necessarily. Last question. Hi. Um, for a publisher, do you normally have just one person per book as a food tester? Food we recipe have, it, tester. Every, every single book is different. So I, I thought about mentioning this before. So, of course, there's usually a single writer, usually, although sometimes there are co-writers or ghostwriters involved. There is somebody who's testing recipes. There is somebody who is styling food for whatever photography there might be. There's a photographer. There's a photographer's assistant. Um, there's someone whose job it is just to sort props out, you know, the plates and 
backgrounds and stuff. Um, there is the person like me, the publisher, there's the editor, the person who actually day-to-day -day is shepherding your book through the process. Um, there may be more editors on the team. There's a proofreader, there's a copy editor, there's an indexer, there's a designer. I mean, you know, I could go on. So there's this huge team of people who contribute to every cookbook that, that's been published mm. up here. Um, maybe not back in the 17th century, slightly, slightly <laughs> smaller teams perhaps, but there are a lot of people involved and it just depends on, on the circumstances around that book. I think that's a really good way to end actually, because it was a lovely insight into the how a cookbook you know, makes it onto the shelf, all the, all the people involved it in making it village happen. As they say. Mm. Yeah. Um, I hope you'd all stay um, and have some lovely food and drink and um, keep warm. Um, the panel are going to stay and you can ask some more questions. Please feel free to have a chat. Um, we have um, some wines and borough wines who are always an amazing supporter of the Borough Market Cookbook Club. Um, Ginger Pig and Bread Ahead have also done some food and Brindiza are doing some things for us. Monica, do you want to tell us quickly what, we're, what we've got here? Yeah, it might be useful for you to know what we've got cooking. Um, Leo and Ivan have been cooking, uh, I think it's almost ready, it's called a, a dish called Fideiwa. Fideo is a Catalan word for short pasta, which I think the Moors actually brought over to Spain. It was called Aletria by, in their um, own language, and it was brought over to the Catalan border, um, coastline ages and ages and ages ago and Catalonia and um, Italy or Sicily anyway do share quite a lot of ingredients so it's like a paella but it's not made with rice it's made with fideo and it's a seafood one probably done I imagine it, he's done it with um, cuttlefish and the most wonderful stock fish stock that they make a red fish stock called fumet wow so, um, and a bit of alioli on the top so there are a couple of versions in the book one day when you manage to look through that, but Leo's a master at it, so enjoy it. Brilliant, lovely. Thank you, and thank you all so much. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Borough Market Podcast. And the next talk is how the media can help your food business and is on Tuesday, May the 16th. You can get tickets and find out much more from the Borough Market website. While you're there, do subscribe to the podcast so you can get all the latest from the stories behind the stalls at London's most famous market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 